managing editor of Whiskey Magazine. This is a first for us, and I welcome you to the Battle of the Friends podcast, episode one, which was recently recorded at the Soho Whiskey Club in London. The Battle of the Blends is a competition we at Whiskey Magazine started last year and very simply is a competition between two contestants to create a blended whiskey. On completion of the blend, we then use Master of Malt, social media and the magazine to call out for judges. The blend is drank by Master of Malt and the judges are then sent two times three centilitre samples simply marked A and B. They then simply go online and vote for the one they like the best. Last year we had 299 judges and Neil Ridley came out on top with 52% of the vote. The competitors this year are the current 2015 champion, Neil Ridley, editor at large of Whiskey Magazine, and George Keeble, who's the manager at the Soho Whiskey Club, the 2016 challenger. We invited 50 guests, and we were delighted that John Glazer, the founder of Compass Box, came along as a guest speaker to add his opinions and offer advice on the blending challenges that face both contestants. Q&As were conducted throughout the evening, and if you would like to find out more about the Battle of the Blends, please visit our website at whiskeymag.com, where you can find out how to be a judge for the 2016 event, and the winner will be announced on Friday the 17th of March at Whiskey Live London. And now, I'll hand you over to Neil. Um, this is a funny, funny thing, because I had no idea that what we would essentially be doing now... Uh, when we started thinking about this idea probably about 18 months ago now. And it was an idea that myself and Dave Broom had uh, one afternoon when we were round the corner at a club drinking and we were thinking about blended whiskies and how underrated blended whiskies are. Now, I'm the editor-at-large for Whiskey Magazine. Dave Broom's obviously writing for the magazine at the time. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun or a fun exercise or an experiment to have an idea to try and put our own blends together. And not to prove how good we are, but to really prove a point that actually blending is an incredible art, which I think most people probably overlook when they're looking at their whiskies. And so we had this idea, this conceived idea of the battle of the blends. And fairly simple concept. We thought, why don't we get a cask? which we managed to obtain a cask each, a 20-litre cask. And into that, we will start to compile or build up our blend from various different regions around Scotland. So we had a certain limitation about what we had to put into this. We had to have a Speyside whisky, a Highland whisky, a whisky from the islands, an Isla whisky, a Lowland, and a Campbelltown. And then, of course, to make it a blended whisky, we had to use grain as well. And we had a bit of fun with this. We thought, well, the grain element can really come from anywhere in the world. So it could be Irish, it could be Scotch, Japanese, Tasmanian, wherever it, we, we chose. The limit, though, was that all the whiskies had to be readily available whiskies and at an upper price limit of £50. So these were bottled whiskies that you could go into anywhere. You could go down into Vintage House or round the corner, wherever you were, and you had to be able to get these whiskies. There couldn't be any crazy-ass single casks from you know, somewhere on Isla as an exclusive one-day thing or whatever. They had to be whiskies that you could readily go and buy in a shop. Really to prove a point, that actually, whiskies under 50 pounds, regardless of what they are or where they're from, are incredible in complexity. And so there we were. We were very happy with ourselves. We thought, this is a really good idea. We had a few more drinks. Then the reality suddenly hit of what we were about to do, because you, Rupert, really seemed to like this idea. 
Um, and then all of a sudden it came together quite quickly and these casks arrived, 20 litre cask. And I looked at this thing and thought, all right, it's a virgin oak cask, it's been charred on the inside, um, it's going to taste awful, whatever I put into this. So fortunately, we managed to have them seasoned with some neutral spirit to take away the dr terribly dry oakiness that you tend to get from a really first fill virgin, uh, uh, virgin cask. So from there, that's where we could start to have a bit of fun. And we started to season them individually. And I chose a blend of different sherries. So I put a blend of Paolo Cataldo, some Oloroso, some Pedro Jimenez, um, and some Manzanilla sherry, all together, about 10 litres into this cask. And I kept it in there for about five weeks. I was keeping an eye on it, how it was sort of changing and uh, working with the cask. I emptied that out, and then we started with uh, a two litres, I think, was the agreed amount of Klein Leash. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Klein Leash with John later on, about why this is such a significant whisky in terms of blending. Partly because it really feels like the bedrock, I've certainly felt for my blend, the real bedrock of the blend. And that's where this thing started to come together. And of course, if you're doing this every month, you're adding a different whiskey. And we were writing a column in the magazine explaining about how our blend was getting on. I don't know if anyone ever gets Classic Car magazine or something. There's a guy who buys a really knackered old classic and they try and keep this thing running for about a year. And every month they write how many bills it's racked up or whatever, how it's a disaster. This was kind of like with a blend. Every month, something would go wrong unexpectedly. And so for the first few months, I was adding different whiskies. Seemingly tasted very nice. And then all of a sudden I came back to it and it was completely different overnight. It was really dry. And I thought, I now need to move this in a different direction. And if you fancy lifting your first glass that you have there, this is what I ended up with. So this is a mixture of all those different regions of Scotland. My grain component was Nika coffee grain, which we're going to go on to in a little bit talk about the importance of grain whiskies. That's from um, a little known region, actually, John, a very niche region. Um, <laughs> unbeknown to many, many other Scotch blends. I feel very lucky to have used that one. It's a, um, an <laughs> extraordinary grain whiskey in its own right. Um, and putting this blend together really taught me a few valuable lessons about whiskey and about how they work together, particularly about the personality of different single malts, about the personality and balance of blended whiskies in general and how they do evolve, really. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we finished our blends. Um, this one had a variety of different things in it. There's a slightly smoky note to this, I think you'll get. That was probably the scariest moment because adding the smoky element it could have gone either way, I think. What I started to do was I was adding a small amount of Highland Park at first, just to give it a gentle smoke. And I came back a few days later, I thought, it's not coming through at all, this. It's, it's really, uh, it's just lost in a blend. So then I thought, I'll add a bit of Talisker to it. I see, well, you know, added a bit more of this Talisker, and then a bit more, came back to it, still nothing, then a bit more, and then I came back to it, and it was absolutely ludicrously smoky, again, overnight like it was taunting me. Come on, put a bit, bit more, a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. Ah, too much. Um, so then, of course, you've then got to balance that smoke away again. Um, and that was the fascinating thing, because it was living and breathing from every day until it was, it was bottled. 
Uh, and fortunately, I ended up winning, and here I am now. It's a, it's a fun process. Uh, I'm not going to gloat about it. It was, it was a moment of beating Dave Broom at something, which was... Uh, 48, by the way. That's quite a considerable... <laughs> so what, what, what were those numbers again? That was, so, it was, it was amazing. It was a little, little bit like the referendum, wasn't it? So, yeah. There you go. Anyway, um, so yeah, like Paul, the winner stays on, and um, I feel very honoured that George accepted the challenge to, uh, to take me on and to put a blend together as well. So I'm going to leave you with this one. This is the end result of the, of, of the very first Battle of the Blends competition. I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to pass over to George, who is going to talk about the influence of grain whiskey on his blend. Um, so, yeah. Grain was the first thing that I pondered about with my, with my blend. The cask arrived, a 20-litre uh, oak cask arrived from Master of Malt, and, um, and I had not actually arranged for any, any whiskies to be put into it. So uh, some mild panicking uh, uh, ensued. And then, uh, and then I went, right, okay, well, grain whiskey. Um, one grain whiskey that I very much enjoy, which is going to be handed out now... Um, and this is actually, this is actually the largest component of what sits in my 20 litre cask. Um, Can you give the amounts away or is it still a secret? No, it's still, it's still a trade secret. Um, so, so I, um, so I, so I contacted, um, uh, someone at Teeling and said, um, you know, you, you make a great single grain. Um, and I'm in this battle of the blends thing against Neil Ridley, and um, and and can you send me some, please? Because um, I quite like to use it. And they said, well, funnily enough, we've actually won best single grain at the World Whiskey Awards two years in a row. And I went, well, funnily enough, I was one of the judges, I think. And they went, how much do you want? And that was so. That was it. So uh, that was the first thing that went into my cask. Um, and yeah, grains are highly underrated whiskies, uh, they do make up a serious, a serious bulk of many, many blends. Um, I think uh, if, if anyone's ever been to a Shivers Art of Blending uh, event, uh, then they will say that you have to use 50% of, of, of everything that goes into your, to your own blend that you make at an event like that. It has to be grain. Um, you're using 50% of grain in yours? No, 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 no. Maybe. Just simply talking about the importance. I'm going to throw um, this out. 50% of this blend was definitely not a grain whiskey. Yeah. Sorry, apparently. I but, um, but, but definitely the largest, uh, the, the largest components, yeah, the largest component will be actually in my, in my cask, will be the teeling single grain, uh, which is, it is a damn good uh, single grain. Um, I was a bit... When the cask first arrived, I was, I'd already decided what I was going to, uh, what I was going to season it with. So the season of the cask, obviously pouring something into that, that virgin cask can absorb flavour from whatever you choose. Um, and I am a massive fan of heavily sherried whiskies. I love all whiskies, obviously, but massive fan of heavily sherried whiskies. Um, so I figured, uh, as I was sat uh, having a good cigar with my friend Marcin from... Um, from Gonzales Bias, I said, uh, you know, can you, can you give me some sherry, please, sir? <laughs> it, it's, it's very much one of those deals. So, um, so my, my favourite... Um, it's worked his contacts here, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. I was down the bloody shops for mine, buying them. <laughs> so uh, I think overall, my, I mean, I love all sherries, uh, everything from a Fino to a Pedro Jimenez. 
but my favourite kind of my favourite overall is um, uh, a sherry, a sweet oloroso from uh, Gonzales Bias. Uh, so it's seventy five percent Palomino and twenty five percent Pedro Jimenez grape. So it's kind of classified as a blend or, or a cream, and, uh, and it's just my favourite. It's lovely from the fridge, whatever. So um, so I poured in a case of that. I poured in six bottles and kept, some of you may remember, I actually kept my cask right here on the bar for about a month and I turned it every day. Um, and when I decanted that sherry, I'm, I'm not one to waste anything, I guess, but sherry in particular. So I poured it back out into the bottles uh, and I poured in six bottles and got five back. So there was one bottle there that had just absorbed into the cask. And, uh, and away I went. So the first thing I threw in was this teeling single grain, which has been finished off in uh, wine casks from the States. And that's, that's all they'll say, although actually someone did tell me maybe they shouldn't have that it, it might be um, Cab Sav. Um, it's Cab Sav as far as I'm aware. Um, but it's a very good grain. Um, mm. Was there a real reason behind choosing this grain as opposed to a scotch grain? Well, my initial thought was I was going to use a Japanese grain, but some, uh, some, some predecessing uh, winner uh, used that as, as, as his grain. Um, it's in, annoying, in, that, isn't it? Yeah, I was genuinely going to use uh, the, the Nikka coffee grain because it is an incredible uh, Japanese grain whiskey, uh, but I didn't want, to, didn't want to seem as though I was uh, copying Neil. The pretender to throne. Yes, exactly, yeah. So, uh, so uh, I... The, yeah, the next one that jumped straight in there was, was teeling. Um, uh, what does everyone think to it? It's really excellent, isn't it? Yeah. It is really good. I'm going to drop a bombshell now, George, and say I have also, in my new blend, put some teeling Yeah, I shouldn't have told Neil too. that I actually... I, I made the foolish mistake I'm of unscrupulous, I don't care, it's fine. So. Um, when I bumped into him in the shop, I said, oh, well, I've used it. I actually, I actually told him just to make sure he didn't use it. Yeah. It's a it's a battle of the blends. <laughs> it's a low blow, but you it's know, a low it's blow, so... but you know, yeah. But it's delicious. Um, I think it's very unique, isn't it? And actually, I will move on to the the the, the uh, coffee grain in a minute, which is actually a very nice time to try two distinctly different world grains next to each other, because mm. this has got a lovely silkiness about it, hasn't it? But a very a real freshness as well. Um, got those fruits as well from the from the wine cask finish. Mm. Um, That's really good. I've kind of gone fairly heavy uh, wine influence on on pretty much all of my components that I've put into my cask so far. Um, pretty much everything has either either been um, sherry matured or, or wine finished. Um, so uh, you probably will be able to tell uh, when you receive the samples which whose is whose. Well, um, you say that now. Wasn't yours, wasn't yours pink the other day? Well, this um, is what I was about to lead on to because um, I used sherry initially for my, the, the first blend that you tried. Um, had a huge impact on the whiskey. I thought, well, I can't really replicate that again. So I thought, well, this time around, I'll use a blend of different port. And I used, I think it was about 10 or 12 litres, um, a mixture of both tawny and ruby ports that I, I bought from a shop. Didn't get free. Um, <laughs> Sucker. It's cost me that. <laughs> I've still got the port though, so it's, it's fine. You know, everyone's a winner, really. But uh, um, anyway, I filled this cask again. Um, I, incidentally, I should say that the casks that we're using this time are the same casks, but we don't know 
whose it is. So I don't know if I've got my old one back or if I've ended up with Dave's. So who, I hope I've got mine. It was really nice. Mm. But, uh, it's my old friend, that now. It really is. It's a good one. But um, anyway, I put my port in. I left it for about a month. I took it out. I put my grain in and my Klein leash. I left it for two days. I drew a sample, and it was the same colour as this Kill home and label here, which to the people on the podcast means absolutely nothing, but I'm pointing at a very bright red label. Um, at that point, I thought, well, that's, that's me done, isn't it? That's, that's pretty distinct. Um, trying that blend was, was a real revelation because actually I wanted to stop there and then. It was absolutely amazing. I thought, well, I haven't put all the requisite component parts in to, to uh, provide for the competition. I thought, actually, should I just pretend? Because it's really nice, this. But that really highlighted for me how port can give you this incredible sweetness, but then another sort of complexity on top of that. I mean, only with two different whiskies in, a grain and, and, a, and a, another single malt from the Highlands, the Klein Leash. But it really did have a huge influence. And of course, over the time that I've been filling my new blend, that colour has started to diminish, but it is still there. There's still the DNA of that port in, in, in the cask. Very good. Shall we move on? Yeah. I feel we should bring our, 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 our guest expert into the, the arena now. Um, Absolutely. I'd like uh... to introduce the incredible John Glazer from Compass Box, who has provided inspiration, whether he knows it or not, for me for many, many years with his excellent bottlings. Um, I first met John about six years, six or seven years ago, uh, when I visited his offices down in Chiswick. And the first thing that struck me is John's completely unique approach to blended whiskey. And, you know, I think it's very easy as a single malt fan to be quite sort of snobbish about single malts and how they're perceived to be better than blends. Well, I mean, when you try one of John's whiskies, all that goes out the window because they're incredible artistic creations, really. And they highlight the real difficulty and skills required to put a great blend together. So we're really lucky to have you here, John. Thank you very Thank much you for coming. Thank you very much, Neil. How much grain whiskey was in yours? What was the percentage? Um, this is not a... It, we'll talk about the championship one, right? So yeah. That's, that, that's last year. That's I, I think I put... Go I mean, it was maybe seven litres. So, well, I mean, so it, it certainly wasn't 50-50. I, I maybe 30-70, I think. To, uh, grain. 30% to, 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 uh, grain, 70% malt. Right. Okay. Right. And you don't want to give away, George, what you're working on right now? No. Right. <laughs> 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 I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that blended Scotch whiskey. You know, if you, we've got records that when you go back, you go back a hundred years or so, um, give or take a couple decades. Better blended Scotch whiskeys used to have a much higher percentage of malt whiskey than they do today. So today, okay. typically, most of the big commercially available blended Scotch whiskeys tend to be thirty or forty percent malt whiskey. Okay. The rest being grain whiskey. Um, if you go back, we've got recipes that go back to the 1890s that uh, when grain whiskey used to be 50-50 to malt, or in some cases, we've got this classic recipe that Alfred Barnard wrote about sometime in the 1890s, where the recipe was, it was 25% grain whiskey, and he, he described it as um, a popular blend both here and abroad. And so, you know, sort of <laughs> under, massively underselling it, but it was 75% malt whiskey blend. So it's interesting, we think, in, in our business, how 
the approach to blending, making blended Scotch whiskies has evolved over time to what would have been much more flavorful whiskies going back 100 years, give or take, a couple decades, to what the bulk of blended Scotch whiskey sure. is today, the big, famous, multi-million well, that, case. that was right. a question I was going to ask you, John. So grain, we look at, obviously now, single grain seems to be becoming uh, a, a thing in its own right. We're talking a lot about different bottlings of different single grains for their character and complexity that are very different to single malts. Now, grain is a much more industrial process, and therefore it's the kind of glue that puts the, 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 the malt together, I guess, in a blend, isn't it? But it gives so much more, doesn't it? It, it can when it's really good quality grain whiskey. And, you know, what's really interesting is that you, you guys have chosen Japanese grain, Irish grain, both aged in really good quality cooperage. So you've got a lot of character from the wood, one even finished. Um, and if you ask me, the big problem with grain whiskey in Scotland today is most of it is aged in tired old casks that have been used too many times. So I don't know if you have a brand that will remain nameless, but you know, we could, I could show you what I mean if we wanted to follow up the Nika and, uh, and the Irish with, with a, a typical Scotch whiskey, grain, grain whiskey, which you know, if they're not aged in good casks, they're yeah, not going to be very interesting. Used, when we first opened, we used to have uh, several, and they were all over 35. Most of them were over 40 years old. Mm, and yeah. they were extremely pale. I'm, I'm, I'm searching for a whiskey mm. behind me that's, that they were paler than. Uh, <clears throat> they were paler than every whiskey behind me. So they're throwing them uh, essentially into fairly, well, used is a, is, is a very polite word, yeah. isn't it? Knackered, I if, think. It's if a, a cask word. is like a tea bag, then yeah. this is like on its, on its like yeah. seventh mug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way I like it, that's George. Right. <laughs> right, well, anyway, enough about green whiskey. Let's carry on. So what are we going to do next? So we're going to try Nika coffee grain here. Um, this, I, I must confess, was the real star of the show when I was putting the original award-winning blend together. Um, every opportunity, I, I must admit. But the, yeah, when, when we were putting that together. Um, and it's I, I, I've come across this whiskey many, many times before because... It is just such a staggeringly different style of, of whiskey making. I mean, it, 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 I, we're all familiar with Japanese whiskies in here, I'm sure. There is something about Japanese whiskey inherently which makes it very, very different to Scotch whiskey. But Japanese grain, for me, really takes on another dimension altogether. And what I was looking for was a, an element of balance, of course. It's, it's certainly you don't want something which is going to be too dominant. But what I found this really gave was a multi-structure to what was becoming quite a disparate blend of different single malts. And that was the problem I was facing, is things were kind of fighting against each other in, in the cask. So I had the Klein leash that was in there. It was a real bedrock to everything. I added in some Abelauer, um 12-year-old. I then added in some Daluin, I think, as well. Some quite sort of you know, readily available bottlings. Um, and it tasted great. But then all of a sudden, after... Happily, it's like the Big Brother house here, you know, they turn up, they're all happy for a bit, and then suddenly, for no reason at all, they just start fighting each other. And I don't watch Big Brother, by the way, I'm just... <laughs> it's a terrible analogy, Guilty isn't it? Um, um, anyway, they all started battling, and I thought, I, I've got to bring this into check now. And adding that Nika coffee grain really helped to sort of... It's like the sort of... The diplomat goes into the cask and says, right, hang on, lads, sort this out, right? 
You've got one opinion, you've got another one, and you've got another one. They're all valid. You've just got to listen to each other. And so it really did start to bring everything together and into context. And because of that, the whiskey that was emerging suddenly started to become much, much more interesting. And of course... This, the, what, the first one. Well, the, sorry, the, the, the award-winning whiskey. Did you listen? That's right. Yes, it is. You see my, my own personal decanter of the award-winning whiskey there. Um, I'm looking forward to getting one of those. <laughs> I, I tell you, listen, George, when we finished my award-winning whiskey tonight, because, of course, if you want another sip of this, this is the last of it, you can keep the empty bottle if you <laughs> it's getting testy already, isn't it? <laughs> We're only two whiskies in. <laughs> um, anyway, to, to cut again, cut long story short. So th that really, for me, Nika Coffee Grain added a very different element, which I didn't expect. Um, no disrespect to Scotch grains at all, because there are some really good ones out there. I think. Certainly, that, that element of Scotch grain is becoming very different, and we're all aware of how Scotch grain is, is growing as a category. But for me, this was, yeah, it was a perfect sort of antidote to this battling thing that was going on in the cask. And I've ended up using this again in my, my, my new blend, um, partly because I've come to rely on it as really something which I hope is going to have the same effect, really. There's one key, key point here I, mm. I think is worth reinforcing, and that is... To make great blended Scotch whiskey, to make great blended Scotch whiskey, malt whiskey, grain whiskey blend, you've got to have very good quality grain whiskey. Otherwise, all you're doing is diluting the malt. Sure. <laughs> and that, if you ask me, is part of the reason so many people view the big brands of blended Scotch whiskey as, frankly, kind of boring. Because if it's 60 or 70% grain whiskey, and that grain whiskey component has been, in, you know, spent three to five or eight years or whatever, maybe even 12, but in, in, in cooperage that's been used many, many times, it's, and it's kind of boring, mm -hmm. the result in blended Scotch whiskey isn't necessarily going to be all that interesting. But you figured that out. <laughs> what he said, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so what do you think? Anyway, very, two very different styles of grain whiskey. I hope you enjoy them. Any indications of which one you prefer, actually? Teeling? All right. I'm not going to talk to you again. <laughs> Teeling? That is a, oh, it is a great whiskey. Um, this is why I've used it as well. Lovely. Are we um, going to take a short break? No, after the next whiskey, we're, we're going to have a we're short We're going to move on to John's break. now. Ah. Indeed, yeah. So we're going to do the Lost Blend. Come back, John. Come back. Um, so we're going to move on to... Um, we're going to move on to what I would say is now a properly blended whiskey. So not... Sonic, which is a bit of fun. This is a seriously blended whiskey, and this is one of John's expressions. Um, is that this one here, isn't it? Um, it is, yeah. Is it out? No. Um, it is in the process. Oh, it's in the process, uh, great. So, as I said at the start, we're really lucky to have John's ad hoc advice here about blending whiskeys. And, John, you've been doing this now for, I think, what, 13 years? 15 years. 15 years. 16, yeah. um, and in that time, you've established Compass boxes, I would say probably the certainly the you've gone from being the maverick blender to being really that something which people know and love as being a really high quality boutique blend. Is that something you really set out to do when you started? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, 
I did set out to try to change the way people think about blending in Scotch whiskey. I, and thank you very much. <laughs> um, as this comes around, it's probably worth noting that this is a very different type of blended whiskey from the ones most of the most of the, well from the one you had to start, and it's very different in style from most of the whiskeys we've had so far. So what you've got here, this is a blended malt whiskey. So there's no grain whiskey in this one. Okay. So it's different in that way. Okay. okay. Um, it's also different in that all the casks that the whiskey component whiskeys were aged in were former American oak uh, whiskey barrels, American oak barrels, so no wine influence here. So a very different style, um, what I would describe as a more elegant style in the sense of um, the flavors, more, more of a subtle elegance to it than the bigger, whisk, bigger whiskeys aged in former wine casks. So two ways it's different. But it's also worth noting, I think, um, we've been talking mostly about blended Scotch whiskey. We've been talking mostly about blended Scotch whiskey. And, what so few people in the world know is that since 2008, when the new Scotch whiskey regulations went into effect, there are, there are actually three different kinds of blends you can make in Scotland. You know, there's blended Scotch whiskey, which is what we're talking about, which is what the industry as we know it today has been built on. That's malt whiskey, grain whiskey blends. There's blended malt whiskey, which is what's coming around now, a blend of single malts with no grain whiskey. And of course, there's blended grain whiskey, grain whiskey without any single malt in it. So there are different kinds of blends. Um, yeah, you might remember when that legislation was put through, I, when it all I, changed, I and we all had to, had to take on the responsibility that. to teach the world about the three different kinds of blends. And this, here in I is uh, uh, something I wanted to touch upon, John, because when I, and we all put our noses into this, incredible complexity, wonderful smoky note to that as well. Um, when we talk about the component parts and the synergy that they bring to an overall blend, there's obviously a lot of personality in there. I'm going to ask, I'm not going to say revealing exactly what's in there, but how no, difficult is will. it? So here we go. We've got a man who is happy to give you the recipes. I'm not in any competition, no battle for me. Um, but when you were doing this, because for me, the, 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 the art of democratising what a blended whiskey is and actually making it something which is accessible and where you see the artistry that goes into it, the idea of of giving a transparency behind this is quite important. And I think when you put together a blended malt and you talk about the component parts, about what they all bring to that, it's fascinating to know where that's come from, really. And I think putting your nose into there, you know that there's some whiskies from all over Scotland which are bringing different elements to it. And I wanted to ask John about this because I know, I won't get into too many details, but I know it's, it's been a difficult challenge for you to explain and be as transparent as you and I think probably most consumers would really want. It, it, yes, what's the question? <laughs> what's in it? It's, what's it's, it's worth mentioning as well um, that, uh, that John has um, had a few run-ins with the, with the uh, SWA or Scotch Whiskey Association, which is the, the governing body of, of what you can and cannot do with whiskies and labels and saying what you can and cannot tell people yes something along those lines <laughs> i was trying to be diplomatic you just so let's in I'll come back to the whiskey so lost blend is what it's called and this is a, a blended malt um what was formerly known as vatted malt um so a blend of single malts and um what is in it okay it is um well let me start with why it's called lost blend <laughs> um because when i first made a blend of single malts going back a dozen or 13 years ago or so ago um, 
I, may, I stumbled, if you will, on this, this combination of malt whiskey from the Kalila distillery and malt whiskey from the Klein Leach distillery. Um, in particular to ages, particular cast types. Um, but long story short, the recipe of approximately 20% of the, the smoky malt whiskey from Kalila, the balance from, from uh, malt whiskey from Kleinleisch, became this kind of magic recipe for us. That 20% peated, 80% unpeated, just became this kind of magic combination. And we had great success in the early years selling this whiskey, which I called Eleuthera. And I'll come back to that story later, why we named it such a silly name. Um, we could no longer at some point, at one point get the whiskies um, that we needed of the particular ages and cast types. So we stopped making it for many years. But then a couple, two, three years ago, we came across these. We sold some parcels of the whiskies we needed. And so we brought it back. But rather than calling it Luthera, I thought, let's call it the Lost Blend because it was kind of lost to us. And I've always loved the name Lost Blend. I wanted to name a whiskey Lost Blend for a long time. It's inspired by an, an O. Henry story, an old uh, early 20th century American short story, The Lost Blend. And I love this combination. It, it has this subtle, elegant, this is, the, I will tell you, I was drinking this over the weekend. I, I can show you my phone. I texted a friend of mine. And I said, Lost Blend is the most underappreciated whiskey we have ever made. <laughs> what, John, All American oak age. What would you say the Klein Leash brings to the party? Yeah. I want to come back to that. Because okay. I, know, I know that's a big one for you. It's a burning you. issue I for do. me. That, but yeah. I just want to finish the Lost Blend story. So when I said it's one of the most underappreciated, I was... It never took off in sales the way some of our limited editions do, like Flaming Heart and most recently Circus and stuff like that. And I always wondered why, because I just love the style so much. And I was in the US a year or so ago, and I was talking to a retailer about it. And he said, you know, it's great whiskey. I'll acknowledge that. But maybe, why'd you call it blend? Why'd you call it the lost blend? Maybe if you took off the blend part, it would sell better. This is where we are, even after all these years of trying to change the way people think about it. So we called it the Lost Blend, because I, it's a, it is a blend. But he thought, if we called it something else, like John's whiskey, just don't put, just don't put blend on it, was his point. I just thought, wow, okay. We're still fighting this uphill battle, but we'll get there. We and actually, that's interesting. Let's do a straw poll, actually. So we're all whiskey fans. I use whiskey as a wider concept here. Hands up who has a go-to bottle of blended whiskey in their cabinet at home. Shivers Regal, Royal Salute, the 21-year-old for me. <laughs> well, there you go. It's not a so confessional, this, but I didn't mean it to be like so, that. So, so not quite half the room. Not quite so, okay, that's room. interesting. That was about um, a third of the room, I think. About a third of the room. So um, we won't get into to this in too much detail, but I think this is a very interesting point because... Blends, and certainly when we get on to our next whiskey, this is going to be a, 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 certainly my game-changing moment because I think blends have been seen as being inferior to single malts. There's no, no denying it. And over time now, we're starting to see blends like John's, like uh, you know, the small batch blends that are coming through from really companies with great integrity are putting great ingredients in and they're telling you what goes into them exactly the same way that John did. When you know where this has come from and it's come from the heart, there's a craftsmanship behind this, there's no different to this, to how someone putting a single malt together would approach the artistry of putting a recipe together. They're using flavour to produce the best possible outcome. And that's the thing I think that is lost, ironically lost, yeah. in the idea of what blended whiskies 
actually mean to people because they are such an enormously important aspect of Scotch whisky export. I mean, 92, 93% of all Scotch whisky exported around the world is blended whisky. And yet only a tiny percentage of the attention is lavished on it. It's, it's, it's something as well most people don't seem to uh, realise as well about a lot of these fantastic uh, single malt distilleries is that actually their bread and butter comes from, uh, from supplying their spirit to blenders, um, the likes of the massive distilleries that you've all heard of, Macallan and whatnot, well over 90% of all the spirit they make goes straight to blenders. I'm not sure so Macallan anymore, but... Uh, maybe not Macallan anymore. Kalila for sure, oh, yeah. Kalila for sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you keep looking, at, uh, you must have a good question. Um, about this battle you were fighting to, to give credit to blend, and you your battle of blend and everything. But if you are going to use tealing and, you know, Nika single grain or your, uh, you know, we had this um, tasting for compass box and lots of good quality single grains, eventually higher prices. I think the whole campaign is targeted to single malt uh, lovers, not the blend users who are 93, 95% of the, of the market, and when they buy a blend, they, they want to buy something accessible, something cheaper. And, you know, there is this gap between that blend with very low quality, you know, grain in it, and then high-end blend, which is more expensive than single malt even, uh, if you want to buy it. And who is going to fill that gap? And that is, I think, where the battle can be won. And that was... Well, I think if you pardon the shameless plug, that's what Great King Street's all about. But that's another tasting for another night. <laughs> I was thinking, actually, that you might be bringing Great King Street along, actually, because it's a very good point. This is, I, I hasten to use it, I don't mean it in a tall patronising way, but that's your kind of entry-level compass box product, isn't it? It's the one that you, in a way, encourage people to start with, to explore the art of blending that you do on a high level, but at a very lower it's price point. It's the most point. versatile and is most appropriate for lots of different drinking occasions. Sure. And I think actually what you were saying is a very valid point in that the way blends are consumed worldwide is probably slightly different to, to single malts. So, you know, we look at, you know, I drink odd single malts at home with over ice or with, with soda or whatever I want, but, you know, it's, it's a democracy in that respect. But actually with blends, they are designed to be drunk as long drinks, uh, they're designed to, 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 to give you as much satisfaction from a serve as you can get. And you are absolutely right in, in that respect that the likes of the bigger blended companies that, you know, Johnny Walker, it could be Chivas Regal, whatever it may be that we get onto, um, they are designed to be more widely consumed. But I would disagree in one respect. I think they are, there's a consistency behind those products and that's a really important thing. But what they are is probably the reason that they're ubiquitous is because they're bloody good at the end of the day. You can't escape that. If they were inferior products, then they would cease to exist because people would go, you know what? I have enough choice in the world. I've got the internet. I'm democratized here. I can look at whatever I want. I don't like this because everybody's saying it's crap. Actually, they're very well-made products and they serve a really good purpose. What you were saying is very interesting because I do think there is somewhere in that middle ground between high-end single malts and high-end blends to come up with something which kind of bridges that gap. So, it's right. worth, I, I, if I can just make one other point on this, and I think we want to have a break, right? Is that what you're doing? Sure. Is, you're right, these are from a quality, pure quality perspective, some of these big ubiquitous brands are 
good quality and quite consistent. The real question is, do they all, um, are they all interesting and compelling to the tastes of today? Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of these big brands, you know, they're million case brands in some cases, but they're in free fall in terms of sales. Um, and they're the, the people who drink them, in many cases, many parts of the world, tend to be older folks, and you know the, the brand seems to be going declining with the, the mortality rate in some of those countries. <laughs> Sadly. So I think that, but I think so. I think there's a huge challenge for the Scotch whisky industry to stay um, relevant through the liquid with the way tastes are evolving today. That's Absolutely. my that's my thing. <laughs> no, I, I think you've summed it up perfectly. I think there, there's a risk of blended whisky becoming irrelevant, becoming a relic of its time. Um, and that will be a great shame because I think we lose something, we lose a, an integrity and a DNA that has always existed in Scotch whisky. Let's not forget that 60, 50 years ago, the idea of drinking a single malt didn't exist. Whisky was all about blended whiskies. The Walker brothers, the Shivers brothers, came from the idea that they were getting such inconsistency from the single malt casks that they were buying. People were like, I don't want that this month. I want, you know, it's different. So they were putting a consistent blend together. And that's really why blended whisky became the phenomenon that it, that it is today. And I, I do hope that uh, everything that John said there is absolutely right. I do hope we find this, this middle ground where people are starting to look at blends for, for what they are, well, for the is, right reasons. If we can finish this little segment on a, on a positive, um, it is happening. You know, I've been doing this for six, almost 16 years now, and I've, I, can, I've, I see it changing. I see people's attitudes change. This kind of event never would have happened when I started Compass Box. Sure. The first time I went downstairs and tried to sell them my grain whiskey, and they were like, what's that? <laughs> right? This kind of event never would have happened 15 years ago. Yeah? Um, things are changing. And increasingly what people are doing is kind of like the world of wine. It's, what's starting to change at the margins is this the blend versus single malt thing. Um, and what we're he where we're heading to is people choosing producers, makers, yeah, and the reputation of a maker. And oh, that might be a blended Scotch whiskey, but my God, that's full of flavor. And I want to drink that with my cigar with my cigar friends or whatever it might be. Um, it's less about blended versus single. It's more about the reputation of the producer and the quality of the liquid in the bottle. And on that, that's the positive one to leave it on. Absolutely. That's we're heading in the right direction. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. I'll tell you what, we'll take one question, and then we'll take a very quick break. Two questions. I just thought I'm going to be mean for a second. Um, do you not think that a lot of the perception with, you know, independent bottlers struggle to find casks that come from the distilleries because a lot of them won't sell them. So I think there's a general perception that if it goes into a blend, then the distillery was happy to sell it. Therefore, it's a less quality, qualitative or flavorsome whiskey, and that's why it goes into the blend, which might not necessarily be true because you get some very nice blends. But ultimately, you know, I think the perception is that if it goes into a blend, it wasn't good enough to stand on its own. That's a very interesting, a very interesting question. Um, one, I'll, I'll be very brief on. Um, I think there are some casks of whiskey that probably don't fit the flavor profile of their proprietary uh, expressions that distilleries offer as a single malt, so they look at using those within blends. Um, I did a project, and I'm still doing a project quite recently, about discovering kind of lost casks of whiskey which have seemingly fallen off the face of the earth. Um, 
and you go along and you visit, you know, we've, imagine most people here have been to a distillery and visited a warehouse and gone, well, there's loads of casks in here. What about that one over there? And a guy says, I have no idea where that's, what the destiny is of that cask. And a lot of them will be going into the single malt that comes from the distillery. But you can find stuff all the way across Scotland if you look hard enough, which has real character and personality. And I think, for me, it highlighted that the Scotch whisky business is a hugely evolving business. It's still quite behind in some respects. But it had, there are some hidden gems there. And I would never say, OK, well, that's gone into a blend. It must be inferior. Because actually, ironically, some of the stuff that I released quite recently as part of these Exiles castings, these were casks of whiskey which were destined for blends, for supermarket blends, one of them was. And I tried this and went, this is amazing. What are you going to do with this? Oh, well, it's for a certain supermarket chain. That closed down 10 years ago. Can I buy it? And they said, well, we'll talk about that in the office. And so I thought, well, I ended up buying this cask of whiskey, which was destined for a blend. And I thought, well, OK, it's matured. It's got real great character. It takes time. Maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, it was a different thing altogether. Um, but certainly, it's a very, very unpredictable business in that respect. Thank you for listening to episode one of our Battle of the Blends competition. Please look out for episode two, which will be available very soon. And don't forget, if you want to find out more or subscribe to Whiskey Magazine, then please go to whiskeymag.com. Thanks very much.